0: I have a distinct feeling that Bonnie chose that arrangement this morning for the little ones uh, over here, which is really sweet. I don't know if you did that intentionally, uh, but it goes along beautifully with uh, what we read from Romans 12 and then, uh, and then also what we confessed together uh, in, uh, in the shorter catechism questions. Uh, and it's really sweet because it is point-counterpoint. The sermon's going to strike a very different chord uh, this morning than that one, and part of that was done intentionally by Bonnie and me this morning. This morning, if you've looked at your bulletin, you will notice that there's no text written in your bulletin for the sermon today. That's not because we're not going to refer to a text, but rather it's because the text for this morning is rather large, and I did not want to put the entirety of it in the bulletin. So let me ask you to open with me this morning in your own Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 2. If you did not bring your own Bibles, please use the Pew Bibles, the blue one, in front of you. And turn with me to page 255 there. Now, I know right at this moment... Uh, that some of you dear friends are uh, tempted to take out your phones and look uh, at your phones for that text. You can do so if you must, um, but there is a great temptation to be distracted uh, during that and to check something else during the service. So if you have to, God bless you and God give you strength not so uh, to wander during it. But, uh, but otherwise, turn in the Blue Bibles uh, with me and let's follow along together. So if you are visiting with us today, and this is your first Sunday, uh, or if you've been with us, here's the quick summary of where we are in this book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, we had David receiving a report of the death of King Saul, of the defeat of Israel followed by David lamenting that, lamenting uh, the death of Saul, Jonathan, and the defeat of Israel in a battle to the Philistines. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, today we're kind of picking up the text at chapter 2, verse 12. But in the beginning of chapter 2, we saw David then established as the king of of the southern portion of Israel, Judah specifically. He goes to Hebron, and there he is once again, in recognition of God's call, of God's anointing, he's anointed as king over Judah. Meanwhile, we also saw that in the northern portion of the kingdom, uh, Ishbosheth was there established as the king by Abner. Abner was uh, the cousin of Saul, the commander of Israel's forces, and he established ish to be king in the north. So there were rival kingdoms within a kingdom, and this is a problem. It was a problem. We saw it was going to be a problem when we looked at it last week, and it explodes in the text that is before us today. It is going to go into the background just a little bit during the then reign of David and his son, and after that, it's going to be full bore for the rest of Israel's history, this division between the north and the south that we see as warfare before us today. So here's what we're looking at. We are looking at 2, verse 12, all the way through chapter 4. I obviously am not going to read every single bit of that this morning, and in fact, I'll just tell you right now uh, that as I read certain sections of this, which I I will do throughout the sermon to kind of give us the feel, the flavor of what's going on here, I am going to chop it up at various places. Uh, Some of that chopping up is just because it's too long, and some of that, not editing, but just stopping where I'm reading, is for the sake of the fact that we have lots of little ears in the room as well. And some of these things are rather rough. I'll read some of them, but, uh, uh, but they're rather rough. And parents, you can decide whether you'd like to read it all to them uh, or not later. And I'd encourage all of us to read through these sections of Scripture when you have time later today or later this week. So here's what I'm going to do. To begin today, I'm going to read us two verses, two verses, just two verses from this entire section that I think help us to see and to get a hold of the entirety of what we have before. So, if you've got your Bibles open, I'm going to read the very first verse of chapter three. This is the word of God. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, this verse gives us a summary of the entire section of this this entire thing. That's what's happening in these chapters that I am reading for us today. There was warfare, and it was a brutal, and it was an awful warfare, and perhaps its brutality and its awfulness is highlighted, exacerbated by the fact that it was between men who generally speaking knew one another. Men who were related, at least related in their own household, in their own camps to the people who were around them, related to Saul or related to David in some way. Men who undoubtedly in battles past against foreign emissaries or foreign enemies had somehow fought together that they've been on the same side against others who were there, and men, of course, who were together, together called as a people before the Lord. It's tragic. The result of this warfare, this intertribal warfare which existed here, is the reason. It's what I've called, why I've called our sermon the rise of the house of David. Okay, that's what this verse is saying. It's describing for the rise of David's house. Now, the second verse that I'd like to read for us, again, by way of helping us to understand the entirety of what we've got here, is it's not quite as obvious as that last one, but it will be as we move along, is the very last verse of chapter 3. In this verse, David is going to be the one who is speaking here, and he is reacting to the news that Abner has been murdered. Abner, by way of reminder, and these names are going to go back and forth a little bit, but Abner is the one who installed Ishbosheth as king in the north, right? He is Saul's commander. So he's mourning the murder of Abner, his former enemy, the one who set up the rival kingdom is what's taking place here as we read this particular portion. And He was murdered, that is, Abner was murdered by Joab, who was one of the commanders of David's forces. Actually, I'll I'll, I'll just pick it up with the quotes in verse 38. Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? That's Abner we're talking about. And I, David, was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, The sons of Zeruiah are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. I'll go back over this again. Zeruiah is David's sister. She had three sons that are mentioned in our text today. One of whom is Joab, who is the direct murderer of Abner, and then Abishai with him is part of that as well. But what I want us to see in particular is this phrase, and I was gentle today, though anointed king. Gentle, I would suggest to you, is a rather surprising word to find in the chapters that are before us today. It kind of jumps out right at you as you see it, and you go, wait, what? There's gentleness in the midst of this warfare? What is that about? And it's key for our understanding of this passage. David declares himself, in this case, to be a gentle, anointed king who looks to the Lord to dispense perfect justice. Now, here's what we know. What we know is we are going to need another king. We are going to need a better, more gentler king than David, one who declares himself to be gentle and lowly and who looks to his father to be the perfect dispenser of justice that is to come. But David in this position is a start. This is the rise of the house of David. It will lead to the rise of the house of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and help us. We've got a lot before us today, Lord. Uh, It was a long time ago. It was in a place far away, and it's hard for us sometimes to wrap our minds around all of this, but we pray that you would help us to do so today in a way that is honoring to you, and that you, Spirit of God, would take this living word and apply it to us now, as we reflect on these things, as you have gathered this and put this together for our edification. Please be with us today and help us to do that well. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. All right, here's the plan for the sermon today. I'm just going to set this straightforward so we can work through it as clearly as we possible can we're going to consider the events, the history that is before us today. I'm gonna to walk us through this passage, some of which I'll read, some of which I'll explain, and we'll understand exactly what took place. Then, the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at the overarching themes. Okay? The overarching themes here we're going to look at why the Spirit of God and our narrator who is writing this has included this in Scripture. What's the big point that Israel was supposed to understand when they read this, and we too are supposed to understand. And then we're going to take what it's initially going to seem like a surprising turn. It's not a turn though, because I think in this passage, believe it or not, there are some really very concrete, very applicable things for us as the people of God, even in the mess that is set before us today. So that's the plan. That's what we're going to do. And we start off then by wading into this warfare and all of the intrigue, all of the jealousy, the power plays, the rage, the mistrust, the revenge that exists here, the treachery, the violence that is found in these passages. That all begins in an oddly almost civilized kind of way. I'm going to read it for us, but it's kind of an organized warfare. At least that's the veneer that's put down over top of it uh, at the first part. It's kind of like, okay, let's, let's, let's deal with this like men. Okay, let's, let's, let's not go into chaos of warfare. Let's, let's be very precise with what we're doing, and we'll be at war with one another and kill one another, but we'll do it at least in an organized kind Of way, that's going to fall apart very quickly, but nevertheless, that's the start. I'm going to begin at verse 12. Abner the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Pause. The two armies. Okay, right? The two armies with their two leaders, Abner for the north, Joab for the south. They go out, they're on either side of the pool. Verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. Why should we kill each other? <laughs> Let the young men go out and kill each other. We'll just gotta see who comes out on top of this. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul and twelve for of the servants of David, and each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into the opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon, and the battle was very fierce that day. Now things fall apart immediately after this okay whatever the intention was in it starting off this way maybe the intention was good maybe it was an intention just to limit right to say let's not have this thing get out of hand let's limit it let's define it in this particular way but in any case it immediately gets out of hand and we see a particular pursuit a particular focus in this next section of the text that we have before. So, we've got three brothers, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, and I've already said these three, well, I said two of them, but these three are brothers. They are the sons of David's sister. Asahel is fast. Everybody knows he's fast. Our narrator tells us a couple of times he's fast, and sometimes when you're fast, you think you can get out ahead of everybody else, and so Asahel takes off in pursuit of Abner, and he's fast, and Abner is running to flee from Asahel, and he's fleeing from him, but he kind of checks back, and he goes, is that you? And and there's enough wherewithal to say, is that you? Are you chasing after me? Because I don't know anybody else who's this fast, but you're this fast, and we all know you're this fast. And he says, you've got to turn. Turn to the left or turn to the right. I can't kill you, because what's Joab going to do if I kill you? So, So you've got Asahel, who's very fast. You've got Abner, who's an experienced warrior, and he knows, listen, if I stop and turn around, you're dead. Turn! Don't do this thing. Well, he doesn't. Okay, Asahel gets will just say—gets ahead of himself. He runs far enough that you know what. All of a sudden, he's the only one around, and with the back end, the butt end of his spear, uh, Abner thrusts backwards, and Asahel is killed. Enraged brothers then continue the pursuit. And here's where we end up. We end up with Abner and a phalanx of warriors on top of a hill. And, uh, and by that point, Joab and Abishai and others have caught up at the bottom of the hill. So you've got the high ground. Okay? Abner's got the high ground at this particular point with his phalanx of warriors. We're going to pick it up in verses 26 through 28. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, "As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until this morning, until morning." So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore? So this battle, this first day of the battle comes to an end. It comes to an end with a little bit of reason being exercised by both Abner and by Joab as well, right? To recognize, golly, this actually isn't good. What we're doing now is what we want to do on the one hand, but what we recognize on the other hand is probably not the best thing to do nor the most strategic thing for us to do. And following this, then, is the summary statement that we have. We know this, there was a long war between the house of David and the house of Saul as well. All right. Now, the story takes a little bit of a break right here in verses 2 through 5. I'm not going to read them for us, but if you've got your Bibles open, one quick peek at them will tell you what these verses are. In verses 2 through 5, after this description of the strengthening of the house of David, we have a list of David's wives at the time and various children who are born to those wives. Now, that seems rather odd. We're in the midst of a pretty uh, awful battle situation, and we get a quick stop along the way to look at David's family, and we can kind of ask, okay, what's happening here? Why did that get thrown in right here? Well, let me, let me suggest to you two things that are going on here. On the one hand, all this is trying to do without comment on the morality of it in this section is simply to say, David's house is increasing. There are more sons, there are more wives, there are, by definition, more people in David's household. And that's what we're seeing illustrated right here. But our narrator is well aware of something else. And, and that is, namely, this is going to cause big trouble. Big trouble, big trouble in David's life as it moves along, in Israel's life as it continues, and then, of course, in David's son's lives as well. This is going to be trouble. Now, we will have occasion, as 2 Samuel goes along, to kind of address this topic a little bit more specifically, so I'm going to now leave that aside. That's what's happening here, but I want to leave comment on it till uh, a, a future sermon. And then following that, in 3.6, we read this. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Okay, so Abner is the power broker. He is probably uh, older than uh, Ish-bosheth. Ish-bosheth. was Saul's son, and Abner was Saul's cousin. So no doubt he's he's older, more experienced than Ishbosheth. Even though Ishbosheth isn't a young man uh, at this point, nevertheless. So chapter three is long, and I'm not going to uh, read all of it. I'm just going to give you the critical aspects of it. So uh, listen to this carefully, as it's in summary form. Abner, immediately following what I just read for us, Abner sleeps with one of Saul's concubines. Why? No explanation given. Uh, but he sleeps with one of Saul's concubines. Ishbosheth doesn't like that. Okay, Ishbosheth says, seems to think, well, that's kind of disrespectful to my father that you would do that. It's kind of uh, edging in on position of kingly authority and place. And so Ishbosheth confronts Abner about the fact that Abner has done this thing. And Abner, and, and again, I'm making there's no moral judge. There's nothing given here. This is just the facts in terms of what happens. But Abner is upset with Ishbosheth that he would pay attention to what he sees as such a small thing. Abner says, Abner's idea is this I'm the commander of the armies, I'm the one who made you king. We are at war with the southern kingdoms, and you're going to ask me a question about who I was sleeping with? And it's the last straw for Abner and Ishbosheth. Abner basically says, That's it. That's it. I, I can't be with you anymore. And instead, I'm going to seek to defect and take Israel with me to David and to his kingship. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 9, and this is uh, Abner speaking here. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul... And set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Dishbosheth could not answer Abner, another word, because he feared him. He was afraid of him. Now, note here, just uh, parenthetically note this Abner seems to know the promises that were made about David. He seems to know them, and yet he's the very guy who set up the king in opposition to David, and is fighting against David's troops. And you kind of go, if you knew the word of God, if you knew the promises of God, what gives? Why why didn't you go along with it? Why didn't you be part of this? Nevertheless, nevertheless, Abner then determines to make a covenant with David on behalf of all Israel. He is not the king, but he is the power. David, in the meantime, insists, hearing this, he insists before he enters into negotiations that he wants Mikhail to be returned to him as his wife. We should not misunderstand this, I'm not reading it this section, but we should not misunderstand it. It's not that David had this long love for Mikhail that had been interrupted by the years of Saul's pursuit. Mikhail, by the way, as a way of reminder, is Saul's daughter. But what he wants is a member of Saul's household, Saul's daughter, back in the household of David. Why? Because that's bringing union between the two kingdoms if Saul's daughter is in David's household. Okay, so David says, I want Michal back. And... He gets ready, or uh, that, that takes place. Mikhail is returned. And Abner then confers with the elders of Israel, reminding them of God's promises to David, and they all determine to align with David in covenant. Abner comes with some representatives to David. They eat together. They covenant together. They discuss this plan together. Abner is sent away in peace with the intent that he will now gather all of Israel together and they will come together and they will recognize together David as king. And Abner went away in peace. And I want to emphasize this because the text emphasizes it. So chapter 3 verse uh, 21, so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Now this begins to get reported to Joab. And at the end of verse 22, we read, and he had gone in peace. And at the end of verse 23, we read the exact same thing as this is being reported to Joaz, and as he he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Abner went in shalom. In shalom. The covenant was being made. The next step was going to be ratification with all of Israel. Now, let's pause for a moment here in the narrative and ask a question. What do you think of Abner? What do you think of Abner? Right? Is he, in this case, truly repentant? Has the Lord done a work in his heart in the midst of all of this mess? Is he honest? Is he earnest? Is he sincere in this personal defection, but not just a personal defection, not just a personal conversion, but a bringing of all Israel to this point. Or, or is he expedient? Is he looking for the power and the prestige of being kingmaker, right? He had made Ishbosheth to be king in the northern kingdom, and now he kind of comes to David as the power broker saying, hey, I can make you king too. Or I can make you king instead of him. I have that kind of power. I've got that kind of influence. Or is it all just because he's angry at Ishbosheth? Right? For the comment that Ishbosheth made and he's just had it with him and now he's looking for another king. Is it some combination of those? <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if we have enough information in the text to make that determination. I don't know if you were waiting for me to give the big uh, reveal on that or not, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to think of him. Personally, I'd like to think the best. I'd like to think the first one, given the fact of the way David mourns, given the fact that David sent him away in peace, David was there, David read the situation. I don't know. I'd like to give it the benefit of the doubt, but questions are there, uh, and we'll just have to, to leave it with that and find out the answer to that one later. In any case, When Joab hears of this, he is having none of it because, remember, that man killed his brother. That man killed his brother, and he doesn't want anything to do with that man. He will get his revenge regardless of the king's covenant of peace. Now, that's that's a problem for Joab. to be a problem all of his life as he bounces around throughout the rest of 2 Samuel. This is going to go back and forth in Joab. On the one hand, you kind of look at him and go, hey, he's a warrior for David. He's totally loyal to David. On the other hand, Joab's going to do some things where you go, oh, Joab, you needed to listen more closely here uh, to what was being said and what was being commanded. But for Joab, Abner is a double-crossing opportunist, besides which, if Abner gets into this place and if, if, we, if we, again, trace, I, I, you can't do this exactly. But in fact, Abner uh, is cousin of Saul. So if you think of them perhaps as contemporaries in age, Joab is the son of David's sister. So no doubt, it seems to me, Joab is younger than Abner. And so Joab looks at this and goes, if that guy comes in here, I'm out. I don't have the power anymore. I'm not going to have the influence anymore. He's going to be the commander, and I'm going to be the second. Joab then follows this deceptively and he murders Abner. He calls Abner back, they have a conversation, and he thrusts him through. He thrusts him through and he murders him. David learns of this and makes this response in chapter 3, verse 28. I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all of his father's house. I didn't do it. Joab did it. May he bear the weight of the responsibility for it. And David then mourns the murder of Abner, who is a fellow Israelite. That's what we read right at the end of chapter 3. A fellow Israelite. And what we see here is something very true, I think, and earnest and sincere on David's part, and something very strategic. David has a vision for the kingdom that is united. It is a union between Israel and Judah. And therefore, he mourns the loss, not just of someone who was his enemy, but he mourns the loss of someone who was significant in Israel, a fellow Israelite. Chapter 4, then, is what you would expect. Chapter 4 is the inevitable fall of the house of Saul, wherein Ishbosheth is murdered. He's murdered, and only a crippled son of Jonathan remains, which is to say, there's nobody. There's nobody who has a serious, significant claim to the throne anymore left in the house of Saul. Ishbosheth is murdered. The head of Ishbosheth is brought to David in expectation of reward by the murderers in a scene that is almost exactly parallel to what we saw in the first chapter here. And I'll quote and I'll start in the, in the middle of verse 9 of chapter 4 just to kind of round out our text for this morning. As the Lord lives, this is David speaking now, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. In other words, well, sorry, pause here. David is saying, I didn't need you to do this. The Lord has redeemed me out of every adversity, every situation that I've been in, the Lord has gotten me out of without resorting to this kind of murder. Anyway, the Lord who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? You want another puzzler? He just called Ishbosheth a righteous man. What do you want to do with that? innocent in this particular case, not worthy of murder. I don't know what to do with that. But in any case, David says, you killed a righteous man in his own house on his own bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them. Now, before we move on to the the main points here, a distinction has to be made and it's one that might be having questions in your mind. What David did to these men was not murder. It was justice. It was the king. The power of the sword belongs to the king. They had committed murder, and he executes them for the murder that they have committed. When Abner killed Asahel, it was not murder. It was a battle, and even so, Abner tried to avoid it. Even though it was the midst of battle, he tried to get Asahel to turn off to another side when Joab killed Abner, it was murder. It was murder. And when these men, of whom we haven't even read, but when these men have killed Ishbosheth, that is murder. All right, there's our text. So here's my first, second question, or the second part of this. What are the main themes that the Holy Spirit, that the narrator wants us to see, would want Israel to see in reading these texts Today that we've looked at. I'm going to give you four, and they're pretty, pretty concrete, so they're, they're, they'll be pretty clear for you. Number one, he wants us to see that David's kingdom is being strengthened, and it will be established, and it will be a united kingdom. God's kingdom will come. God has established David to be the king, and despite all these things that are going on, God's kingdom and God's king will be established. And the implicit call that we considered last week that goes along with that is to say, seek the king and his kingdom. Align yourself with the Lord and with the Lord's anointed. With the Lord God and with his anointed. With his Christ. This is the rise of the house of David. That's point number one. That's what we're being shown here Point number two is this that in the midst of what may only seem to be awful, God is at work here. Now, the first hymn that we sung today was the hymn, God is Known Among His People. It is almost an exact uh, rendering of Psalm 76. And I'm going to highlight one phrase that I've highlighted before, but it's so important for us to understand this, and especially in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the last phrase of the third uh, line in that. And it says this, in the wrath of man shall praise you, your designs it shall fulfill. That's, it's, it's a direct quote out of Psalm 76. But the wrath of man that you think, the wrath of man, oh, that's, uh, that's, that's hindering the plans of God. But the psalmist says, no, 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 no. Even that even that that is in rebellion against the moral law of God, the wrath of man, even that I'll use to, a pur- to the purposes of keeping God's designs to be what they will be. God, in other words, keeps his promise. God promised the kingdom to David. God will deliver the promise of the kingdom to David. God works out his will. He works out his will in David and he works at his will in Jesus, and I will not go into this long right now, but I hope the idea that's in your head should be the sermon at Pentecost that Peter Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, right, where he says to those men, you put him to death. By the violence of wicked men and their hands, you put the Christ to death according to the perfect plan of God, the foreknowledge and the plan of God. You did it but God accomplished his perfect will through your wrath. Third, this is the third thing that our narrator wants us to see. David is not responsible for Abner and ish deaths. He was not responsible for the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. Instead, he mourns. He seeks justice as the king, justice ultimately from the king. He was gentle. He makes that self-declaration. He did not grasp at the kingdom. He did not strategize to get the kingdom. He did not employ any underhanded kind of tactics in order to get at the kingdom, to seize the kingship, to get rid of the rivals to the throne. He did none of those things. He was gentle. He was upright and God was delivered to him the kingdom. He waited patiently, and God fulfilled the promises that God made. Fourth, and this is what we said at the beginning, we need a better king than David. David is flawed, and it's already seen here in these sections, though perhaps, well, in one sense it's obvious. We see his flaws in all of these wives that he keeps taking. It's going to be a problem. It's a problem then, and it's going to be a big problem in the rest of this book. It's an awful sin, and we'll get to it. He is a flawed king, and he's flawed in that he does not bring full justice to bear on Joab. Joab was a murderer. Joab murdered Abner. He deserved full justice to be taken out upon him, and David didn't do it. Now, in a good way, he leaves it to the Lord. He leaves it to the Lord to do it. But he doesn't only leave it to the Lord. He actually leaves it to his son. It's going to come back when when Solomon is anointed as the king. And we're going to come back to Joab. And one of the last things David is going to say to to, uh, Solomon is, take care of Joab. See, he, he passed the buck. He passed the buck and took what should have been his responsibility and gave it to his son. We need a prince of peace who will bring us... A covenant of peace that will last forever. All right, those are the main purposes of these difficult texts that are before us today. But I think we can be even more personal in our own lives with these texts. And and listen here carefully. I, I don't think, I don't think, what I'm about to do for us is any stretch of what we've got before us today. I'm going to give you four of these. Four of these things that are personal to us as well. First. These passages help us to see, as so many passages do, the labyrinthine nature of our hearts. Sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly, sometimes just in ways that are plain for us to see, for all to see. We get involved in power plays and looking for influence in jockeying for position. And, and if you doubt that, compare what is here to what the disciples are doing the night in which Jesus was betrayed, right? They're doing the exact same thing. They're jockeying for position. Who's the greatest? Who gets to sit closest? Who gets to sit in this place in the kingdom of heaven? There's all kinds of impure thoughts and motives that are going on. Our motives are often mixed, or sometimes they're just plain impure. Sometimes we can justify things like this by saying, look at what other people are doing, and because they're doing that, we're going to have to do this same thing because that's the way they're playing, so we're going to have to play that way as well. Other times, other times, we quote Jesus, who said, you're going to need to be as wise as serpents, right? So we go, well, you got to be as wise as serpents, and forget the second half of that, and as innocent as doves. I think there is a call here in this passage then to be careful of our own motives, our own machinations and maneuverings. I think there is a call to simplicity in this text, a call to integrity, to respect, to honor, to kindness, to straightforwardness in our dealings with others, a a call to plain spokenness. Now, I, I don't mean that in a harsh way, like say-whatever's-on-your-mind type of flippancy that might be interpreted to be that. I'm talking about just that we would examine our own motives, that we would distrust sometimes our own motives and our own thought processes, and that we would try to be as clear and as plain-spoken as we can in what we're saying to other people. Second, there is a call here for leaders to be patient, to be wise, to be thoughtful gentle, and just. There will always be threats to the kingdom of God. There will be threats externally and internally. These are all internal threats to the kingdom of God. Whatever leadership position we hold must combine those qualities that are on display here. In particular, leadership must include both gentleness and justice as appropriate. As appropriate, given whatever station of leadership we've got. It has to have both. It can't have either. It has to have both of those things. Third, by negative example, perhaps, there is a call here, not only to leaders, but to those who would follow. There is a call here to respect God-appointed leadership. Now, to be sure, in particular, that applies to the anointed king, and then to King David, and then to Jesus, ultimately, right? That's, that's the call, ultimately, uh, to respect the leadership of King Jesus for us. But the principle extends beyond that. It extends to the church. It extends to your family, to your workplace, to your soccer team, to your state, to your nation. Honor your father and your mother. They're not anointed. They're your father and your mother. Honor them. And if you've ever, and I know you have, looked at the Westminster uh, larger or shorter catechism and said, well, what does that mean, honor your father and your mother? It belongs to everyone. Everyone, as, as styled there, inferiors or superiors, in the position that God has put them in, honor them. And then Romans 13 takes this, Paul takes this principle and says, leadership, emperors, etc., have been appointed to their positions by God. In the same way that a king is anointed? No, not to that extent, but to a degree, but to a degree. Finally, here's the last one, and this is where we are closing today. I hope you appreciated the contrast between our New Testament reading from Romans chapter 12 and our sermon text. I did it on purpose, of course. Romans 12 is almost the antithesis of this, the the exact contrast to what we see here, though we get some glimpses of this in David. Romans 12 gives us the battle plan for warriors in the present day of the kingdom, in the rising house of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. We live in a different time than they, and here are our marching orders as the church. Imagine, imagine, it's a different time, but imagine Joab hearing these. Seventeen, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. And here's the summary, one that we have come back to time and time again, as we should. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what Jesus did follow the example of the king. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to understand our own lives, our own circumstances, our own situations, so that in them we would be able to walk with integrity. That where we are leaders in those positions, that we would understand gentleness and justice that must be woven together in our leadership, that where we are following, we would understand the call to honor and great God that all of us would be able to seek after that which is good and overcome evil by your power, by your grace. King Jesus, you are gentle and lowly. You are the perfect embodiment of all of this. We thank you that you will return in glory with all of your angels, with all of the host, and at that point, perfect grace, perfect mercy, perfect justice will prevail on this earth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we your people say, amen. All right, let's receive